morning, Bellevue. It's great to be with you this morning. I want to invite you to take out your Bibles, please, with me and open them uh, to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. And I'm excited to be talking to you this morning uh, as I was praying about what to preach on. You know, in my church right now, I don't even have to, to think about what to preach on because we're going through the book of Genesis and I just preach on whatever's next uh, in that book. But today, as I was praying about what to preach on, the Lord really laid on my heart this text from Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. Uh, and the title of my sermon to you this morning is Differences Without Divisions. Differences Without Divisions. Did you know, even in a culture and a society that is so polarized in so many ways, did you know that it's possible to have differences and not divide over it? That's news to some people in, in our day to day. But I want you to know the Bible teaches this principle, and it's really important for the church to get this right if we're going to carry out our mission. So I want us to see what Paul says about that in Romans chapter 14. Uh, when you found Romans 14, beginning in verse 1, please follow along with me as I read through verse 12. The Apostle Paul says this as he writes to the Roman church. He says, as for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask your blessing right now on our study of your word. We pray, O Lord, the same thing that Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17. We pray that we may be one, even as you and the Son are one. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by doing a little Baptist trivia with you guys. Is that okay? Does that sound fun? Two of you thought that sounded fun. All right. I want you to think about this question and answer it in your own mind. You don't have to answer it out loud. How many different Baptist denominations do you think there are in the United States of America? I want you to think about it. You got, you got the number in your mind? How many Baptist I'm not talking about all the other ones, Methodist and all the. I'm just talking about Baptist. How many Baptist denominations do you think there are in the United States of America? All right, you got your number? Let's see if you're right. There are 62 Baptist denominations in the United States of America alone. I'm going to list them for you right now. 
Uh, not all of them. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to list all of them. I'm going to give you a taste, okay, so that you'll see what I'm talking about. Here, here are some of, of them, and these are just, again, in the United States. There's the American Baptist Association, the Association of Reformed Baptist Churches of America, the Association of Welcoming and Affirming Baptists, Baptist Bible Fellowship International, Baptist General Conference, Christian Unity Baptist Association, Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, Enterprise Association of Regular Baptists, Free Will Baptists, Full Gospel Baptist Church Fellowship, Fundamental Bi Bi Baptist Fellowship Association, Fundamental Baptist Fellowship of America, General Association of Baptists, General Association of General Baptists, General Association of Regular Baptist Churches. I'm only halfway done. All right, General Six Principal Baptists, Independent Baptist Church of America, Independent Bi Baptist Bible Fellowship International, Independent Baptist Fellowship of North America, Institutional Missionary Baptist Conference of America, Interstate and Foreign Landmark Missionary Baptist Association, National Baptist Evangelical Life and Soul Saving Assembly of the USA, Old Regular Baptists. <laughs> I, I kid you not. Some people had had enough. <laughs> Old-time missionary Baptists, primitive Baptist universalists, separate Baptists, separate Baptists in Christ, two-seed in the spirit predestinarian Baptists. Don't know what that one is. United American Free Will Baptist Church, United American Free Will Baptist Conference. Those are 30 of the 62. Now, I'm, ba I'm Baptist by conviction was in... Baptist churches from the time I was in the womb, but even I can see that's a bit much. Why are there so many different, even Baptist denominations in our nation? I'll tell you why. Because somewhere along the way, every time some group of people had even the slightest of differences and disagreements, they decided then rather than working those differences and disagreements out and maintaining the unity of the body of Christ, they decided that it would be easier and better just to part ways and they divided from one another. And I believe that what Paul is telling us in the passage that we're looking at this morning is that the tendency for churches and Christians to divide every time they have some differences, if they're over secondary things, and we'll get to that in a minute, the tendency to divide like that is wrong. It's wrong. Churches are doing that today. There are probably more than 62 now than when I first looked this up. Our convention is on the verge of doing that today. It's always on the verge of splintering and dividing. I've almost gotten off of all social media, and one of the reasons is I'm just sick of all of the fighting and the bickering and the arguing and the division. As one pastor once said, we've got some people in our churches that post more than they pray. If some people would take half of the time and energy that they're currently using to fight with other Christians and they used half of that time and energy to win the loss of Christ, we'd win the world of Jesus in a lot shorter amount of time. Division is serious. You know why? Because division hinders the mission. It's why Satan in every generation wants to divide the church. You know why? Because a house divided against itself cannot stand. And a church divided against itself cannot fulfill the great commission the way Jesus wants it to be done. Jesus prayed in John 17 that we might be one. So how do we do that when in this room there are probably a multitude of different opinions on doctrinal things that could potentially divide us? How do we as a church do that? How do we maintain unity despite our differences? Well, I want us to turn to God's word together here in Romans 14, and I want to see 
what Paul has to say about that. Because here's the deal. This is not new in our generation. In every single generation of the church, even stretching back into the Old Testament with the people of Israel, there was the potential for groups of people to divide and and, and not to accomplish the mission that God had set them out to do. And what we find in Romans 14, verses 1 to 12, is this general principle, that when it comes to secondary issues, now listen, I'm not talking about essential issues, we'll talk about that in a minute, there are some things that we cannot agree to disagree on. There are some things that we must agree on if we're going to be Christians and we're going to be in the body of Christ. But what Paul is talking about in this text is what typically divides churches, and that's not essential things, that is secondary things. And what Paul says is that when it comes to secondary issues, we must not let our differences divide us. All right, so how do we do that? Notice with me the first principle that we see about how to maintain unity despite our differences in verses 1 through 4. First, Paul begins this passage by telling us that we must welcome differences of opinion. We must welcome differences of opinion. I know that cuts against the grain of everything that we're trained and conditioned to do in our culture. And listen, I'm there. All the opinionated opinionated people in this room, including me, have to say, oh, me on this, because we can't say amen. We must welcome differences of opinion. Notice what Paul says in verse 1. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, what? Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Now, when Paul says here, the main verb in verse 1 is welcome this person, and, and, and who are we to welcome? Paul says again in verse 1, we are to welcome the one who is weak in the faith. Now, what does Paul mean when he refers to someone as someone who is weak in the faith. Uh, when, when Paul talks about the person who's weak in the faith, he's not talking about someone who isn't saved. He's talking about a saved person, a, a brother or sister in Christ, but they're weak in the faith. And as we, as we go through the passage, what you'll find is that uh, the weak person in the faith is someone who is, just doesn't have all their theology figured out yet. They don't have all, all of this kind of doctrinal things figured out, worked out in their mind yet. They don't understand all of the Bible yet. Now, raise your hand if by that definition you would be considered at some level a weak Christian. Like, you don't have all your theology figured out yet. You don't have all the doctrine figured out yet. You don't have the whole Bible figured out yet. That's really all of us to one degree or another. So at some level, in some area... All of us would be the weak brother or sister because none of us have perfect understanding of the Scriptures, which means in a group like this, there are going to be lots of different opinions on different ways of reading and interpreting parts of the Bible. In fact, it's been said uh, that in a room where five Baptists are present, there will be ten different opinions. Did you know that? (laughs) Now, specifically, again, in, in the context of this passage... Weak, the weak brother that we're to welcome, but not to quarrel over opinions. The weak person, weak involves beliefs that some things are sinful when really they're not. Okay, as you work through this passage, you find two different things that the church in Rome was quarreling over. They were tempted to divide over. One was, can we eat meat or not? All right, they had some really hardcore spiritual vegetarians, and they said, you can't eat meat. Probably this had to do with some of the Old Testament food laws that forbid some of the meat, but they were going a step beyond that and saying, you know what, we don't even want to get close to the edge. So if the Bible says we can't eat some meat, we're going to just say you can't eat any meat. And then there were other Christians who were saying, no, but we like meat, and I think it's okay. I think Christian liberty would allow us to eat meat, and these things were causing divisions in the church. But Paul would say that the person who thinks you can't eat meat, they're wrong, and they're weak in the faith, but 
welcome them. Welcome him anyway. Even though he's wrong on this secondary issue, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. The second thing that we see in this passage is that there were some people who thought that there were some days of the week or some days of the year that were more holy than others. And Paul understands, because he's more mature in the faith, that he would be a strong believer in the faith. He understands that that's not necessarily right, that in one sense God has made all days holy, and, and we shouldn't quarrel over some days being more holy than others. But Paul says, even though those people are weak in the faith, and even though they're wrong on some of these things, even though they think some things are sinful, like eating meat and not observing certain holy days, when really they're not sinful, even though they're weak in the faith and they have a weak conscience, you welcome them anyway. You don't cause them to have to leave and go create their own denomination. You don't, leave, you don't cause them to, uh, to create a division in the church. Instead, you welcome them and without quarreling over their opinions. These were people uh, in, Paul, in the churches in Paul's day who were tempted to divide. So watch this. Weak means, weak means that someone is wrong about some secondary doctrinal belief, and yet Paul commands us to do what with them? In verse 1, to welcome them. Now, he gives, again, a specific example here in verse 2. Here's what he says. He says, welcome the person who's weak in the faith. And then in verse 2, he gives us this first example. For instance, Paul says, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. That's going to be somebody's life verse in this text. The weak person eats only vegetables, right? Again, in this case, the weak person who is thinks that they only must eat vegetables to be a good Christian, they're, they probably have a misunderstanding of the Old Testament and how it still applies to them today and, 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 and how the Jewish Old Testament food laws might then extend to all kinds of meat. And, and their attitude was, you know, God has his law that we shouldn't do certain things and he has his fence that we're not to go beyond. But just to make sure I don't get too close to the edge, I'm going to build my own smaller fence inside of God's fence. Ever known anybody like that? They make up laws that the Bible doesn't even have in it, right? Like, they're putting laws on top of God's laws. The Bible, this is what legalism is. It's when we add laws to God's laws. And even though we might have good intentions and good, good motivations for doing that, God is much better at writing and giving spiritual laws than you and I are. So just as we shouldn't take away from God's word, neither should we add to God's word. To do this, Paul says, would be to be weak in the faith. And that's not a good thing. We want to be mature in the faith. And nevertheless, this is one of the things that they were fighting over. Verse 3, notice what it says in verse 3. Here's the solution. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains from meat pass judgment on the one who eats. So what's the key? Let's say you've got two people, two groups of people in a church, and, and some of them think you can't eat meat, and others of them think, no, we can enjoy meat. It's part of the good gifts that God has given us, and we shouldn't have to, to forbid ourselves from that. Then what do you do? You've got a strong person who does understand the Bible, and they're free to practice their Christian liberty and eat meat like that. You've got weak people who think it's wrong to eat meat. How are they going to coexist in the same church? It might be a little difficult at church potluck, but, but how are they going to coexist in the same church? Well, Paul tells them this, let the one who eats, the strong person, let them not despise the one who abstains. The strong person is the one who is correct and who knows that they're free to eat meat, but they shouldn't, what Paul says here is they shouldn't despise the one who thinks that it's wrong to eat meat. In other words, 
The strong person who knows that it's okay to eat the meat and practice their Christian liberty to do so, the strong person should not say or think about the weak person, you idiot, you're wrong. You just haven't figured it out yet. And then likewise, what should the weak person do? The weak person who thinks it's wrong to eat meat and they should not pass judgment, Paul says. Let them not pass judgment on the strong. The weak person who thinks it's wrong to eat meat should not pass judgment on the one that thinks eating meat is allowed. Why does he say this? Because the one who has a weak conscience and thinks something a sin, even when it's not, their tendency is to pass judgment and be judgmental and to think that someone is sinning even when they aren't. In other words, Paul is saying that the weak person should not say or think of the strong person, you dirty sinner. How can you sit there eating meat like a liberal? Have you no morals? No, instead of the strong despising the weak, and instead of the weak passing judgment on the strong, both the strong and the weak should welcome one another and not to quarrel over opinions, verse 1, which means they're going to have to find a way to agree to disagree agreeably. They're going to have to find a way to agree to disagree over these secondary issues agreeably. St. Augustine once said, in essentials, unity. We must have unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Now notice one thing before we move on from this. When Paul says, welcome each other, even if you disagree, this does not mean that both sides of the debate are equally right. After all, Paul calls one side of the debate the strong and the other side of the, this doctrinal debate the weak. The person who misunderstands the Bible and adds to God's laws and thinks that nobody can eat meat, that it's unspiritual and sinful to do so, they are weak. That's not a good place to be. We ought not to want to be weak. They were wrong in their doctrine. So Paul is not saying just be content to be wrong. Instead, you should study to show yourself an approved and to, to be a workman that's not ashamed of, of, the, of the gospel and to understand the scriptures and, and to be convinced, as we'll see in your own mind, of your point of view. But at the end of the day, we should welcome one another despite those differences. And then notice what he says here at the end of verse 3. What is the reason why, ultimately, we should welcome someone even if they disagree with us on some secondary doctrinal issue? What is the reason we should do that? Notice what Paul says at the end of verse 3. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master, God, that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. God has welcomed him. The ultimate reason that you and I should welcome a fellow Christian with whom we have doctrinal disagreements that are on the secondary level, the ultimate reason we should welcome them is because God already has welcomed them. So who, who are we not to welcome someone that God has welcomed? God welcomes people who don't have perfect theology. Aren't you glad of that? I'm glad or he wouldn't be welcoming me. I'm sure I have bad theology somewhere. I just don't know where it is. <laughs> Probably have to wait till heaven to find that out. All of us are that way. God welcomes people who might be wrong on some secondary doctrinal issue. God welcomes people who disagree with you on some secondary doctrinal issues. And if God can welcome someone that you disagree with, then listen, why can't you? If God can welcome someone that you have disagreements with on secondary issues, then why can't you? If God can still welcome someone who is wrong 
over some secondary doctrinal issue, then why can't we? How dare we reject someone that God has accepted? Now, the question is, how do we know when some doctrine is really, really important and we we can't disagree on this, it's an essential, and then on the other hand, you've got other doctrinal issues that are not essential, but they're still important, and and yet we shouldn't divide over these. How do we know how to do that? Well, here's a good way to think about it. I read this a long time ago from uh, the president of Southern Seminary, his name's Al Mohler, And here's what he used, an illustration he used to describe how how to understand different doctrines and which ones we should should really be dogmatic about and not give any ground on and which ones it's okay to agree to disagree on. He says, you know, it's like when you walk into an emergency room. Uh, Any of you walked into an emergency room lately? Uh, A couple years ago, we had three children that broke their right foot within two months time span, all right? We went to a lot of emergency rooms. I knew the orthopedic floor like the back of my hand. But uh, let's say you walk into an emergency room, and in that emergency room waiting room, you've got all kinds of different people with all kinds of issues, and all kinds of issues that vary in their degree of severity. And so you may have somebody walk in with a really bad scraped knee, and then you may have somebody walk in or be carried in with a gunshot wound to the chest. Now, we understand that all of those people are important, and all of their issues are important to one level, but some of those issues are more severe and more important than others, right? And so what what doctors and nurses in the emergency room have to do is they have to practice what's called triage. Triage. It's a French word that means to sort, and you've got to be able to sort through all of these issues that are coming into the ER and which ones need to be seen first. You know, if I'm walking in with a, with a really bad skint knee and somebody else behind me is coming in with a gunshot wound, I expect them to jump the line in front of me, right? Like they need to be seen first. Why? Because this issue is more essential. And here's the issue. When we think about doctrine in the Bible, all the things the Bible teaches, all of it is important or else it wouldn't be in this book, <laughs> All of it is important or else God wouldn't have put it in his book. And yet, some of the things that are in this book are more essential than others. There are some things we must agree on. And yet, there are other things that while they are important, they are not worth dividing over. That's what Paul's talking about. And so we've got to be able to be like a good ER doctor or nurse. And we've got to be able to do theological and doctrinal triage. And as issues arise in the church, we've got to be able to discern which of these issues are life and death and essential, and which of these issues are important but are not worth dividing over. So let me, you may be thinking to yourself, well, what are some examples of what you're talking about? Let me give you some examples to kind of bring this home a little bit. Again, all doctrine is important, but but some doctrines are more important than others. What What are some examples? Well, here's some essential things, for instance. These are doctrines that the Bible is very clear about that we must not allow differences of opinion on in the church or else we can't be a church anymore. Here's some. So first, for example, the Trinity. We believe that the Bible teaches there is one God who exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and there is no room to agree to disagree on that. We're talking about who God is. Another one, the full deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. Uh, we, can't, we can't disagree on that and still consider each other Christians, right? If you disagree on that, you're another religion, not just another denomination, and you're not a Christian. Uh, another doctrine that we can't disagree on, justification by faith alone. We're not saved by works. We're saved by faith alone. We're made righteous by faith 
alone, by grace through faith, not of works. Another essential would be, for example, the authority of Scripture, that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant Word of God. These are the kinds of things, and the list could go on, but these are the kinds of things that, that are essential. And Paul is not teaching that we should welcome people with differing opinions on those things. But what are some secondary things? There are secondary issues that I believe Paul is saying we can agree to disagree on. Let me give you a few examples of this. For instance, how will the end times play out specifically? Again, in a room full of five Baptists, ten Baptists, will there be ten different opinions on the last thing, on the, on the end times, okay? Did you know that there are differences of opinion on that? I heard Dr. Rogers uh, once say, I'm not an amillennialist or a premillennialist. I'm a panmillennialist. I think everything is going to just pan out eventually, okay? People will read the same Bible and have disagreements on that, and we shouldn't divide over it. It's a secondary thing. How about this one? The relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Did you know that some people disagree on that? None of y'all knew that. All right. That's a secondary issue. How about this one? Speaking in tongues and whether or not the miraculous gifts continue on today. Important, but should we divide over it? No, it's a secondary issue. Here are some more. Should Christians drink alcohol? After all, everyone knows Jesus and the disciples drank Welch's grape juice, right? How should Christians educate their children? Public school, private school, or homeschool? What kind of clothes should you wear to church? Which Bible translation is best? Can you bring a drink inside the worship center? Listen, you will get kicked out of some Southern Baptist churches for bringing a drink inside the worship center faster than you will heresy regarding the Trinity. I'm telling you right now. What kind of worship songs should we sing in church? Can a Christian listen to secular music? Can Christians watch certain TV shows? If you're a Christian, do you have to vote Republican, Democrat, or Libertarian? I'm going to move on before I get in trouble here. So, first of all, Paul is saying, listen, the enemy wants to divide and conquer the church and keep it from fulfilling the Great Commission because he knows that a united church is a threat that the gates of hell cannot prevail against. But if he can get us fighting and squabbling and arguing and dividing over secondary issues, then he's got us right where he wants us. So first, when it comes to secondary doctrinal issues, we must welcome differences of opinion. This is what Paul tells us, welcome. But then there's a second key to maintaining unity despite our differences and not dividing, and that is this. We must be true to our own conscience. When it comes to those secondary things, and we've got our opinion, and man, we, we think we're right, and, and there were some people in this church that, man, they thought they were right about whether or not they could eat meat, and, and whether or not they could, you know, practice certain holy days, and whether or not the whole, the whole church should observe certain holy days, they thought they were right about that. What should you do with that conviction? Well, you should be true to your own conscience when it comes to secondary things. Now, when Paul deals with this in verses 5 through 9, he's not telling us that our conscience is the ultimate authority for what is right and wrong. At the end of the day, the Bible is the ultimate authority for what is right and for what is wrong. But did you know, as we've been discussing, that two Christians can read the same Bible and come up with two different interpretations on some secondary things? And so what do you do when that happens? Well, you've got to be true to your own conscience. Notice what Paul says about that in verse 5. He says this, One person esteems one day as better than another. So now he's moving to the second example in the Roman church, right? First, he dealt with people who thought you should only eat meat. 
And now he's dealing with people who, in verse 5, esteem one day as better than another. While another person in the same church esteems all days alike. They think all days are alike. Each one, here's the solution, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. You see that? Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind, even though they differ. So one of the secondary things, again, that the early church had disagreements on was, can you eat meat? But here we see that another secondary thing that the early church in Rome had disagreements on was whether or not certain days of the week were more holy than others. Now, again, this probably had to do with certain Old Testament laws. And there were probably some Christians in the church at Rome who had Jewish background uh, in, their, in their culture. And, and they believed that, you know, every, even though they're Christians, even though they're a church, even though they're not in the Old Covenant anymore, when Passover rolls around, there were some of them, I'm sure, that thought that needs to be on the church calendar, right? Like we need to all observe this. And, and so they were very insistent on that. Maybe there were other festival days that they were insistent that the church observe in the New Testament. And then others were saying, well, yeah, but, but didn't when, when Christ uh, did what he did in, in, in his death and resurrection and, and brought us into the new covenant, didn't all days become holy in one sense? And, and so do we really have to continue to observe all those Old Testament festivals and so forth. And, and so they were having these disagreements. And, and here's the solution. Paul says, each one, regardless of where you fall on that, should be convinced in his own mind. Now notice this, you must be convinced in your own mind. What Paul is not saying is that doctrine is not important, therefore don't worry about it and just stop studying the Bible. No, Paul is saying be convinced on these secondary things. Study the Bible. Really try to come to an understanding of everything that is in this book but realize at the end of the day, you could be wrong in some areas, but be fully convinced in your own mind of what is right. And then when you and your brother have a disagreement on what you're convinced is right over a secondary, not essential, but secondary issue, then at the end of the day, you need to agree to disagree. Paul is saying, you're not going to be able to convince everyone else of every single thing you believe. And I think we need to hear that this morning. We are not going to be able to convince everyone else or every other Christian in the world of every single thing we believe when it comes to the secondary doctrinal issues contained in the Bible. We say, well, pastor, I'm sure going to try. Don't, don't, don't do that. Paul says, don't even try to make it your life's mission to convince every other Christian of every secondary conviction that you have. Literally, again, he says, welcome the weak person, but not to quarrel over opinions. You will not be able to convince everyone else's mind to believe exactly the way you believe in your mind on every single doctrinal issue. In fact, you will stay very busy, I believe Paul is telling us, by convincing yourself of what you believe. My parents used to tell me, Grant, mind your own business and you'll have your hands full. <clears throat> if you mind your own business, you won't have much time to mind everybody else's. That's what, part of what Paul is telling us here. Paul is telling us then, when it comes to, for example, are some days more holy than others for Christians? And things like that, secondary things like that. Paul is telling us that what matters most at the end of the day is the motivation of that person's heart. Not that you get every single point of doctrine exactly right. Where do I get that? Notice what he says in verse 6. He says, the one who observes the day, who thinks a certain day of the week is more holy than others, or a certain day of the year is more, and that every Christian should observe this day because it's holy. The one who thinks that, verse 6, observes it, why? 
in honor of the Lord. And then he says this, the one who eats all the meat that they want, eats it in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains from the meat and thinks it's wrong to eat meat, why are they doing it if their heart's in the right place? They're abstaining in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Paul is saying, you know, those people, even if they're wrong to think we must only eat meat, ultimately, why are they motivated to not eat meat? They're motivated to do that because they think that through that sacrifice, they're honoring God. And even if they're wrong on that, at least their heart's in the right place and they're trying to honor God, so you should welcome them. And the person over here that says, no, no, I think the Bible teaches we can eat meat if we want and, and we can enjoy that. What are they, why are they eating that meat? They're doing it in honor of the Lord to enjoy one of the good gifts that God has given him. Like Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, for instance. Notice what it says in 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 and 5. He, Paul says this, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. By the way, this is the verse I claim at Thanksgiving, when the whole spread is out there, and we're about to eat, nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving. Amen, amen. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And so some people in the church, why are they exercising their Christian liberty to eat meat if they want to? They're doing it because they recognize it's a good gift from God, and they're doing it in honor of the Lord, and they're glorifying him. So you see, you can have two people on opposite ends of this issue, and while they differ in terms of what they believe, their hearts are in the right place because they're both wanting to honor the Lord. And Paul says, as long as they're convinced in their own mind that their position is biblical, and as long as their heart, most importantly, is in the right place, they're doing it to honor and glorify God, then you can still have unity despite your differences. And then notice what he says in verses 7 through 9. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die... We are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the living and the dead. So here's the most important question. Does the person in this disagreement, do they believe this? Do they believe, verse 9, that Christ died and lived again? Do they believe, verses 7 and 8, that if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord? Do they understand the gospel, and are they trying to live their life for Christ? That's the big question. And if they can answer yes, I believe the gospel. Christ died and he rose again. And to live as Christ and to die is gain for me. I want to live for King Jesus. Then we ought to be able to say, I welcome you, brother. I welcome you, sister. If we agree on the essentials and we both have our hearts in the right place, wanting to live for Christ, we can welcome one another and we can lock arms and we can fulfill the great commission that Christ has given us together. You know, sometimes we can... We can make small mistakes, and as long as our heart's in the right place, it's okay because it's the thought that counts, right? Uh, our oldest child, Olivia, is on the front row right here, and she loves that I'm drawing attention to her right now. And she had a birthday a while back. Uh, she's about to turn 15, but she had a birthday a while back, turned 14, and we had 15 ninth-grade girls come over to our house and spend the night. Now, at the time, we have our own five children. We had three foster children. We had eight of our own kids, and then 15 Ninth grade girls as well. We were probably breaking a fire code at some point that night, but it was great. And so they all gave her gifts and we had cake and, and they gave her cards. And I was looking through some of the cards that her friends had given her. And I came across one of the cards that really caught my attention. And I read it and the card said, happy birthday, grandma. 
right? Now, that might have been an intentional joke. I don't know, but I thought it was really funny. Have you ever done that, by the way? Have you ever bought the wrong card for someone and like it was kind of embarrassing? But here's the, here's the deal. At the end of the day, even though that, that little girl bought our daughter the wrong card, happy birthday, grandma, her heart was in the right place, right? Like she made a small mistake, but at least she was trying. Like it's the thought that counts. Her heart was in the wrong, in the right place. And here's what Paul is saying. When it comes to secondary issues, again, not essential ones, but secondary issues, people might be mistaken. But the most important thing is that their heart is in the right place. Christ died and lived and lives again. To live as Christ and to die as gain. If that's my heart and I disagree with you on a secondary issue, we can still join arms together. So when it comes to secondary doctrinal issues, we must first welcome differences of opinion and we must second be true to our own conscience. Now thirdly, and finally here, the third thing we must do to have differences without divisions is we must leave accountability on these secondary issues to God. We must leave accountability on these things to God. Paul ends the passage this way and says this in verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of whom? Was your name in that spot? Mine wasn't. Sometimes I wish it was. We must all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, God says. And every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God, not to one another. Paul says the same thing in a similar way in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, where he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And here's the reality. When you and I think about the fact that you will stand and be judged by God one day, It'll make you a lot less likely to judge others in the here and now. When we recognize that one day I, Grant, I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and I will give an account for everything I've believed, for everything I've said, for everything I've done, for everything I've thought, and I realize I will stand before a holy God and have to give an account of myself, it will put me in my place, it will humble me, and will cause me to think twice about judging someone else over something that is secondary. When we get to heaven... When we get to heaven, we're going to find out where we've been wrong in our theology. And Paul is telling us that until that time comes, let's err on the side of being gracious. Let's err on the side of welcoming people who disagree with us on secondary issues, knowing that the only one who will ultimately sort it out is the judge of all the earth who we will stand before on the last day in, in glory. Listen, theology is important. It's very important. But so is the unity of the church. Let's insist that we agree on the essentials. But let's agree to disagree on non-essentials. You know the reason most churches are denominations split? It's not typically over essential issues. It's typically over secondary issues. Why do we have 62 Baptist denominations? It's not over essential issues. Most of those are over non-essential issues. And again, Paul is saying that the tendency to do that is wrong. Jesus prayed in John 17 for the unity of his disciples, and he prayed this, I pray that they may be one. Now listen, I doubt that we'll ever be able to unite all gospel-believing, biblical denominations 
in our world or in our country. I'll doubt we'll even be able to unite all 62 Baptist denominations before Jesus comes again. But why don't we start right here? Why don't we start in our own churches? Why don't we start in our own convention of churches? Why don't we start in our own community? How do we do it when there's so much to debate? How do we do it when there's so much to differ on? How do we do it when our tendency is to be so opinionated? Here's how you do it. Welcome differences of opinion. Be true to your own conscience. Leave accountability to God.